Well, once again, good morning, Motion City. It's good to see everyone this morning. I'm just kind of last minute. Those intro videos get shorter and shorter, and so it's just harder to get everything. But man, so good to see everyone this morning. I, has anybody enjoyed the, the warmer weather and the, uh, the extra hour of daylight? Man, uh, here's the deal. I have never been, nor will I be political as a pastor, but I am fully for lobbying that we never go back. Like, I am just totally all about, like, keeping the sunshine out longer. I'm totally fine with that. I'm, 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 so yeah, so let's start up a rally and, you know what I mean? But here's the deal, and this is, and I wrote it in my notes. I'm going to start it with my hashtag, sorry, not sorry, but just as though the sun outside is great, the sun, S-O-N, is better. Hashtag, sorry, not sorry. Uh, but <laughs> we have been uh, in a series the last few weeks called The Vow, and we're continuing uh, the last two parts over the next two weeks. And and really what we've been looking at is, um, we've been looking at the topic of marriage. We've been looking at the idea that what does it take to not just have a marriage, but what does it take to have a great marriage? Um, I don't think anybody would ever jump into something being like, you know what, I really hope with everything inside of me that this ends up being the most mediocre experience I exist in for the rest of my life. Right? I'm looking around and I'm one and... and Nobody's here whose wedding I've done, which I'm not sure if that's like a good thing or a whatever, but, but it's like when you stand before your friends, when you stand before God, when, when whether, however you paid for it, when you put all the money into it, man, as you stand up in front of a, a minister or a, a, a person, a civic person, whether you stand before your friends, your parents, your grandparents who have just been praying and hoping and waiting that, that you find that right someone, and, and you never stand up there with, this, with saying, you know what, we're going to do something a little different because all we're shooting for is mediocre. And over the last few weeks, what we've been trying to do is we've been trying to give some tools, some information to not simply just have a marriage, but we want to see that, you're, that you have a, a, a great marriage. A marriage that simply doesn't survive a lifetime, but a marriage that thrives through the course of your lifetime. A marriage where husbands and wives don't simply tolerate one another until one of you eventually dies. But we want to see marriages exist where husbands and wives fall deeper in love with their spouse day in, day out. A marriage where you grow more in love with each other every single day. But in order to have a marriage like nobody else, you're going to have to do some things that nobody else is doing. Because if we're honest, if we look at today's culture and we look at what's normal, how many of us could just say, you know what, normal just ain't working no more. When, um, when Jen and I, um, before we started dating— which time? You'll have to ask her. <laughs> anyway, um, she's not here today. Uh, if you can pray for Addie, she's, she's a little, she's pretty sick right now, so Jen's not here. But um, it's, it, I can say whatever I want because Jen's not here, so this is great. Um, but when Jen and I uh, first started dating, before we started dating, one of the things, honestly, that attracted me so much to Jen was this idea of how different she was than, than me. She was so different than, than who I was, and then she was so different from so many of the other people that I had dated because, because man, I, I, to be totally honest, I have a type. Um, blonde and beautiful being the two ones, so I nailed that. But like growing up, like there was, a, there was very much preference. That there's preferential things that we have when we look for something, and not that Jen isn't all of those things, but she was just so different than I was. She was so, like her perspective on things was different. Her approach to life was different. Her approach to everything was different. And I, and I kind of remember sitting back thinking like, how do you 
survive being this way? How do you function in day-to-day life being the way that you are? And yet in the same way, this confusion made, was, was followed by this attraction because how many of you guys have ever heard the old adage, opposites attract? Have you ever heard that before? Opposites attract. It's, it's an old adage, and, and sometimes in the midst of craziness, you're kind of like, you know, opposites attract. And while that's all well and good in dating, how many of you guys know that those things that made you different when you were dating become sources of tension when you're married? Um, as I was doing a lot of studying for this series, uh, I came across this uh, in, a, in a few different books, in a few different sermons, in a few different uh, articles that I was reading, and it said, in dating, opposites attract, but when you're married, opposites have the tendency to attack. I mean, have you ever seen this exchange before? And I'm not going to say, have you been in this exchange before? But, but maybe, maybe, I don't know. Uh, maybe you, you might say, like, when you're dating, you're like, oh, man, they're so funny. They're so relaxed. They're so organized. They're so passionate. They're so easygoing, man. This person is so driven, man. I love that this person is so affectionate. And all of a sudden, a few years into marriage, it turns to, this person is so, they used to be funny, and now they're obnoxious because they got a joke for everything. It's super obnoxious. This person is so, um, is just lazy. I mean, I remember liking them for the fact that they were super relaxed, but man, now they're lazy. This person, they're OCD, they're OCD. This person, they are so pushy. Well, then there's this person that they're a pushover. This person's controlling. And I remember liking the, the fact that they were affectionate, but now my wife is a sex hound. <laughs> Relax, people. This is, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better, I promise. But, <laughs> gender joke. Um, anyway, but, uh, <laughs> but, I've said it before, and I feel once again that it's worth repeating the things that you and I uh, idolize in somebody then can quickly become the things that we demonize in them later. The things that we idolize in them back then can be the thing that we demonize in them now. But what Satan wants to do, and this is, this is really what he's been trying to do since day one. If I could just give you just a quick little Cliff's Notes on Satan, he's not creative. He's got one trick, and he uses it very creatively. And he's been using the same trick since Genesis that he uses now. And what Satan does is he wants to create division based on your differences. Satan wants to create division in your marriage based off of your differences. But God's plan for your marriage and God's plan for your life, just like God's plan for the church, is that he would strengthen us because of our differences. God can take what other people see as hindrances and weaknesses and he can transform them into strengths. And what, that's what he wants to do, I believe, for our marriage is that we would look at our differences differently. Not as things that divide us, but things that strengthen us. Because here's what I know. If you marry someone that is just like you, one of you is unnecessary. If you marry and, and the two ex, we're not experienced, seasoned, like a fine steak that marinades for a while. If you want to know, ask them. Because the reality is, man, if I were to marry someone like me almost 10 years into it, one of us is definitely unnecessary. Is it convenient for a time? Yeah, but it's not going to get you very far. 
And so just, uh, just as a quick point of review over the last couple of weeks, we want to look at the few vows that we looked at over the last two weeks before we get into the one uh, that we're going to be looking at today. And vow number one that we looked at two weeks ago, uh, Nathan Sawchuk did such a phenomenal job of kicking off this series. Again, if you have not listened to that message yet, you can go to motioncitychurch.com, hit teaching, go to podcast, listen to that message. It is phenomenal. But what Nathan talked about is this idea of vow based on priority. And the vow was, I promise that God will be my first priority and my spouse will be my second. If your spouse is your sole priority for life and purpose and happiness, you are putting a weight on a human being that they were never intended to carry. And so God has to be our first priority. God has to be our, the first person that we seek, the first person that we go to must be God because God oftentimes in those moments will bring clarity and direction so that when you bring it to your number two, it sounds less insane and weighty because God through the power of the Holy Spirit begins to work on a few things. So God in your marriage has to be your first priority. If your spouse is your first priority, change it. Bump them down to number two. Last week, we looked at the idea that I, will all, I promise to always pursue my two. I promise to be a person, I promise to be a husband who continues to pursue my wife and reject the idea of comfort, object the idea of familiarity, because familiarity breeds contempt, and familiarity can breed laziness. And so I want to be someone who pursues my two with the passion that Jesus pursued me. Now this morning, what we're going to be looking at as we, as we continue is vow number three is this. I promise our marriage will be about we and not me. I promise that our marriage will be about we and not me. And, and I just want to hit back on, on, on kind of our key verse for, for this series, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And it says this, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. They will become one flesh. Now, as I get into this topic today, I do, and I, I, I do so very honestly with a raised level of sensitivity because we're going to be talking about uh, the vow of partnership. The vow of partnership, that marriage is a partnership. And I understand diving into this topic that we all come from different backgrounds and we all come from different experiences. And some of us have a tendency of looking at topics like relationships and marriage through the lens of our parents' divorce. Some of us have a tendency of looking at the topic of relationships and marriage through the divorce of a close friend, or, or maybe it's through your own divorce. I don't know. And, and I say raise sensitivity because here's, here's the difficult truth, is that I cannot change, and I will not change what the Scriptures say. I can't change, and I will not change what the Bible says, but what I can do is I can only present what Scripture says understanding that we look at it from a specific lens, but believing that God's power through the Holy Spirit can alter the lens in which we see normal through and begin to see it through his eyes with his intentions. And so this morning, I'm just going to present. I'm not going to present me. I'm going to present what God says. And I know that Scripture is, 
and I know from Scripture that although we have the inability to change our past, God has the ability to transform our futures. And so the thing that I love is that no one is too far gone for God to use in this, in this grander scheme of life. And so if you're here this morning and you've experienced disappointment, you've experienced pain, you've experienced divorce, you've, you've experienced the messiness that comes with relationship, know that you are never counted off. Know that you are never counted out from a relationship, from a marriage that honors God and would bring joy to your life. Um, in Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 6, uh, Jesus is actually speaking so in marriage, and what he's doing is he's actually reiterating in the Gospel of Matthew what Genesis 2 says, and this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19. He says this, Jesus says, Haven't you read? He replied, Jesus oftentimes spent a lot of his ministry replying to questions. I think the, a few weeks ago we had Tim Anderson from Ace in the City um, just did such a phenomenal job talking about the, 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 the seasoning of life sometimes isn't the answers you have, but the questions you ask. And Jesus spent so much of his life in response and then therefore asking questions. And so Jesus right now, he's replying to a question. And, and Jesus says, haven't you read, knowing that they probably have, that in the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. I've had a lot of conversations about marriage in the last few years. Um, some of these conversations are with family. When, when you're a pastor, family functions become kind of the all-encompassing, here's all of my year's questions, and can you fix it over some potato salad at the family reunion? Uh, a lot of, some questions have been from family. Some have been with friends. Uh, some conversations have been with complete strangers who get curious when I get the opportunity to escape my home and work at a local coffee shop, and one of the first books I plop out after my computer is my Bible. I have I've had a lot of conversations, and man, you want to have some good conversations, throw a Bible out on the table. People, I'm just saying. Um, and I've had a lot of conversations as I was thinking about this, this series and thinking about this topic, and often when people would ask me questions, I, I try to be like Tim, and I try and be like Jesus, and I try to ask them questions and, as well. And a lot of the conversations when I talk about marriage, the, 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 the answers that I get or the questions that I get as answers is, well, here's the, what is the, what's even the point? of marriage anymore. What's the, point, what's the point of marriage? Because the idea that 50% of first marriages end in divorce, and the fact that 63% of second marriages end in divorce, and then if you happen to get a third marriage, 73% of those marriages end in the vo divorce. And, and as I'm having these conversations, I'm catching on this general tone that if, if, if it's basically ultimately set for failure, what's the point? I don't, I don't recognize a point in it anymore. And besides, people would say it's just an established government contract, right? It's just this thing that Big Brother can use to keep tabs on you and, and, and change your taxes and take more money from you. It's just a government-established contract. And, and truth be told, without a Christ-centered worldview, it would seem so. Marriage seems insane. 
I was listening to a comedian. I'm not going to say who because we don't promote stuff like that. But I was listening to a comedian, and he said, marriage is ultimately the most insane thing because what you're doing is you're getting, someone's getting down on a knee, giving someone a very expensive piece of jewelry and says, I'm going to give this to you as long as you promise to tolerate me until one of us is dead. That's nuts. That's a Stephen King novel. That's misery with uh, Kathy Bates. That's, that, that's weird type that's a weird conversation outside of a Christ-centered worldview. Marriage does seem small if it simply exists for two people, but, but I know that God's the one who created marriage. And I know that God's the one who designed marriage, and God has a habit of creating and designing things that are big. He has a habit of designing and creating things that are significant. And nothing that God creates is small. And nothing God sets into motion is insignificant because it's more than a contract. God created marriage to be a holy covenant between two individuals and a holy God. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract. And I grew up, and I'll, I'll be the first one to say, I grew up in church and I've heard that a lot. But in order for me to understand, and hopefully maybe, and if you're smarter than me, well done. But I, in order for me to understand, I had to look up the difference between the two. So what's the difference between a covenant and a contract? First, a, a contract is this. I will put this up on, on, on the screen. A contract is an agreement based off mutual distrust. A contract is an agreement based off of mutual distrust. A contract exists so that you, two different parties are saying, well, here's the deal. I'm willing to go in as far as you are. But ultimately what I'm hoping and what I'm assuring myself of is if, if you fail, I'm going to get mine in the end. So when we exist, when we look at marriage as a contract, we're looking at it from a place of mutual distrust. Here's the deal. If we get bored with each other, if one of us uh, looks at porn, if the other person uh, cheats, I mean, all these different things, we, we can create all these different criteria based off of a mutual distrust. And, and, it, and that's kind of a surefire way to fail, right? It's a surefire way to keep one foot in and one foot out. And, and if we look at marriage like that, yeah, I can see why, why 50% of marriages fail and 63% of second marriages fail and 73% of third marriages fail. I, I can kind of get this understanding because you're walking into this amazing thing from a mutual place of distrust. But when we look at a covenant, what a covenant is, a covenant is, agree is an agreement based off mutual commitment. A covenant is an agreement based off of mutual commitment. The word commitment, coming from the Hebrew word bereath, is, it, it, it talks on this idea of this idea of, of cutting. That there's blood attached to a covenant. That there is a binding agreement, and that agreement is solidified with the shedding of blood. Uh, oftentimes, when there would be a business uh, transaction or a business covenant made, there would there would naturally be a shedding of blood at the conclusion of, of the terms in which th the two parties agree. Usually, it would be an animal. An animal's blood would be spilled. When we get into the topic of marriage, now here's the deal. This will be uncomfortable. I'm warning you. So, but we're just, because, but this is all placed together. Before I, I say, I'm just going to take a drink of my bravery juice. But when we look at marriage, a marriage covenant, oftentimes what would happen 
is that a holy priest would stand with a bride and a groom. And at the culmination, before there was the announcement of husband and wife, what this priest do is he would take a blade and he would cut into the groom's hand and then he would cut into the corresponding hand of the bride and then they would hold hands and the priest would bind their hands together with an intermingling of blood because in Leviticus we talk about the idea that there is life in the blood. So in this practice it would be that there's no more two life because we're mixing this bloodline. We're mixing so there no longer becomes two but one because life is is in the blood. And then after the wedding ceremony, you've got a virgin male and a virgin female, and they would engage in intercourse for the first time. And then through that, there would be a shedding of blood once again, bringing together two people, not just at a physical place, but at a spiritual place as well. And this was holy and righteous and a beautiful occasion before a holy God, symbolizing both a physical and spiritual joining together. That is why sex is such a huge deal. That's why sex is such a huge deal. It's created by God, intended for a husband and wife exclusively for marriage because no matter how difficult the situation may get, God never planned on an exit strategy for marriage. This is why when we enter into a marriage covenant, not a marriage contract, Marriage is not a, a, I'm in as far as you are. Marriage isn't even a 50-50. It's 100% 100 and 100%. Two individuals not giving half, but bringing everything they've got into this common relationship, bringing everything they have into the same thing. It's It's a from this day forward, for better or for worse, in sickness and health, for richer or for poorer, forsaking all others, as long as we both shall live. So help me, God. It's beyond doing unto others as they would have them do unto you, but marriage becomes a doing unto others as Christ did for me. I want to... uh, I want to shift gears for a second, and I want to talk about this, um, that marriage is a, is a partnership. Marriage is a, is a partnership. It's, it's till death do us part. It's about we and not me. We've covered all this, uh, but it's a covenantial part. But what is a covenantial partnership really about? What is a cov- When we talk about a covenantial partnership, what does that look like? And I want to sum it up in one very easy sentence to say, but one very difficult sentence to understand and live out. And so if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write this down. It's this. A covenantal partnership is godly leadership and mutual submission. Godly leadership and mutual submission. Now, here's the, I understand that the moment I said the word submission, there was some rage that rose up in some people. There was some animosity and some, oh, don't, don't. And here's the deal. I actually had in my notes Jen talking about this, uh, the mutual submission from the wife's side. But as long as she's not here, she agrees with everything I say. No, I'm just kidding. But you guys all know where I live. You can just show up and ask her. But, um, but when I say, but, and here's, here's why when I use the word submission, some freak-out fireworks begin to happen because we live in a culture where that, that word and regrettably in the church amongst Christians, this is a word that is oftentimes misused and abused and I will say probably 100% of the time from the husband. But what it says is mutual. 
Whenever the Apostle Paul, when he's talking about marriage, specifically we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul begins this conversation with this idea that we are to submit to one another. There is, when it comes to this idea of ultimately submitting ourselves to one another, it comes under the hierarchy that Christ is the top. Ephesians chapter 5, 21 says this. It says this. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Our lives are lived in a submission perspective from the moment we come into a relationship with Jesus. Our lives are lived in the posture of submission. Submit to each other. Submit to one another. And that's not this idea that, well, I'm the more dominant one, so I'm going to bulldoze my way through, or I'm the more passive one in the relationship, therefore I'm just going to allow things to happen. This is a two-person game. This is tandem tennis. This is you, you and another person working together for the mutual satisfaction, the mutual benefit, the mutual joy of each other and your relationship. But first and foremost, it's this idea of submitting to each other out of reverence for Christ, Christ continuing and always being the top. But when, we're, but when it comes to marriage, we're called to submit, mutually submit to one another. And, and I would be one of the dumbest human beings in the history of dumb human beings if I did not submit, submit to the things that Jen brings into the marriage that I don't. If I'm on a ship and the ship is sinking, ain't no one asking the DJ how to plug that hole. So why, you know what I mean? So I would be the dumbest of dumb human beings if there were circumstances and situations in my marriage where I clearly do not have an understanding of what is going on and Jen has a far greater understanding. I would be an idiot to say, nope, I know you have a far greater understanding, but we're gonna do what I want because I am the husband. That's not just domineering, that is stupid. And so what I have to do and what I have learned to do. And mind you, I spent three years of our marriage at the beginning being stupid DJ trying to plug holes in ships. I have to submit to the insights and the wisdom and the knowledge and the expertise and the discernment of my wife. Man, your marriage, you are married to somebody with such insurmountable gifts and talents and insights. And the reason maybe some of us don't know what they are is because we don't shut up long enough to find out what they are. We don't ask the right questions. We don't take time to listen, but we listen with an agenda because we ultimately want to get our way. Here's the deal. If you listen thinking about what you're going to say to prove this person wrong, you are not listening. And so we've got this mutual submission. Jen's got discernment. I've got discernment on different things. But Jen is really good at discerning situations and people far better than I am. And so again, why on earth would I try and make decisions based off of experiences that I am clearly insuperior? Because if our marriage is going to be great, it comes with a mutual submission peace. I submit to my wife on things out of reverence for Christ. And she submits to me 
on situations where maybe she does feel like she knows a little bit more, but ultimately, man, it's taken almost 10 years to get here. But this place of trust, that she knows that she's given me the information, but she, I, I hope she knows, and I believe that she knows that when all the information's given, I go to God. That I don't complain down or burden down, but I lift up and, and we've gotten to this place where there are moments where she makes the final call because in all honesty, it's the call that I determined to make. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, what I just said, but I'm going to say it again. Ultimately, in our marriage, the final decision that I make is ultimately the final decision that she makes because I trust my wife. Paul goes on to say that, the, uh, uh, that Paul goes on to say he first says submit to one another. Then, continuing in verse twenty-two, he says this, uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read the whole thing. Um, for whatever reason, I did not copy and paste all of it into my notes. So sorry. But Ephesians chapter five, starting in verse twenty-two, says this. It says, "Wives, submit to your husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which he is the Savior." Okay. Again. Tension. I feel it when I'm reading it. I get it. But here's the deal. I heard somebody say it this way. I heard a wife say it this way. When Jen and I, we would go to marriage nights on, on a couple churches we were at staff at, and, uh, and, and our pastor's wife said this. She goes, I submit to my husband. I submit to, to my husband, Rob, as, as unto Jesus, and he submits unto the Lord as, as Christ did for the church. Now here's the deal. I just have to, I just offer my opinion and Christ died for the church. And so ultimately as our role as men is to, is to submit to our wives as Christ submit, as Christ submitted ultimately to death on the cross. And so it costs, as husbands were called to put it on the line. As, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in, in everything. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Here's that verse. And gave himself up for her. There's this idea that as husbands, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And Christ went to the cross for the church. Christ went through the cro- to the cross for humanity, giving up everything. Verse 26, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. I remember when we were in Louisiana, this is really funny. This has nothing really to do with anything. But I remember uh, after our pastor had preached on this section, I remember a woman coming up to me as I was drinking coffee very casually in the lobby, as I tend to do. Uh, I just enjoy coffee. And, and she walked up to me and she goes, well, here's the deal. If he's the head and I'm the neck and I'm going to control where that guy goes. I thought that was one of the funniest things uh, that I had ever heard. And I was just like, all right, we'll see you next week for counseling. Um, but Whatever you want to do with that, that's fine. But but Scripture is clear that the husband, here's the deal, the husband is the point of, he's the point of lead in the family. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands and everything. As we read this again, I know that there's this immediate sort of sense of, of tension because it's been abused quite a bit. 
This is honestly, in, the, in, in conversations that I have about marriage, this is probably continuously the number one thing that, that is in, in, in straight discourse between husbands and wives. Wife saying he's a jerk, husband saying I'm the leader. And again, I, oh, I have it in my notes. Jen, I w- would love for her to share this, so maybe we'll, I don't know, maybe we'll get her up here next week. Um, but um, but wh- I really want to take a moment to talk to the men for a second. Because I know that men, our tendency is to walk into this marriage relationship with our chest puffed out and in in this idea of dominance. And at times there's a tendency to use our title, use the authority that we believe we've been given in an abusive way. And what I want to say to men is this, you are called to lead. And leading does not mean making all the decisions. That's dictatorship. That's not leadership. What we are called to do as husbands is we are called to set a tone and a direction, seeking God above the opinions of others, submitting our agenda and our expectancy to God, knowing that in the position that Christ held with the church, Christ's position was to lead. Lead from a place of a servant. We, uh, uh, Jen and I, we, we lead the church, but, there, but there's not one person in this church that makes all the decisions. As we were getting into this, I was the one who definitely set the tone. I set the vision. God gave me something. And we just kind of put that on a piece of paper and we're chasing after it. And, 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 what we're, and what we're going to do, men, is we are going to and we are called to set a spiritual tone for our families. We are called to seek God first before all things. We are called to set the spiritual tone. And if, and if my wife is, is such a phenomenal contributor to my life and, and in the relationship that she and I have together to our family, man, she contributes all day long in such an amass, a massive and amazing way. And as we co-direct and as we co-lead our children into living relationships with God, man, we, we lead from a sense of mutual submission. And I am, have the ability to lead with with honor and dignity because I've come to realize almost after 10 years of marriage that leadership comes by serving first. Leadership comes by serving first. And as husbands, we are not called to lord over anything or anybody, but we are called to serve first. Serve first. And then lead in a direction. Lead your families in a direction to know and love Jesus. Lead in a direction for them to know and understand that, man, God is so worth giving over the entirety of your life to. But ultimately, at the end of the day, and this is where partnership comes in so heavily, at the end of the day, here's here's the honest truth. Your marriage will be as good as both of you decide it will be. Your marriage will be as good as both of you decide it will be, period. And I understand some of you are in a place where one of you isn't maybe all in in the marriage. One of you isn't all in maybe in this journey of faith, in this journey of pursuing Jesus. And here's the deal. I can't change the person, and you cannot change the person. But what we're talking about is a covenant, and like we said at the beginning, we're not all in as far as someone else's. We are 100% all in. And here's the difficult thing. If someone's not all in, maybe you need to pull another 100% and be all in for them. 
And we talked about last week, I have a really awful tendency of conditioning my pursuit based on what I receive. I'm a human being, not perfect. If you've been here maybe a day, you figured that out. But I have a really hard time sometimes with this idea of I'll give Jen A, B, and C if she gives up X, Y, and Z. And, and that's not anything to base a life on. And sometimes there are moments in our marriage where I'm trying to give 200% because maybe Jen's not feeling it, or Jen's trying to give 200% because I'm not feeling it. I'm in, I'm in oftentimes, I, I do, I deal with depression and I deal with anxiety, and sometimes that just kind of knocks me off guard, and so Jen has to put, I mean, and, and, and that's just kind of how it has to be sometimes. But if you've ever been in a boat where the two of you are required to row and only one of you is rowing, you'll end up in a circle and you'll end up frustrated. But sometimes, for the sake of the relationship, for the sake of the marriage, for the sake of your family, for the sake of your sanity, sometimes you may need to push someone over and grab the other oar and start rowing both of them at the same time. But that doesn't sound fair. It's not. That doesn't sound easy. Trust me, marriage ain't easy. That doesn't sound fun. Marriage is sometimes the least fun thing you will exist in. Right, married people? Thank you. <laughs> Your wife's not here either. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, Nicole is there. Oh, no. Uh, hi, Nicole. Glad you're here. Good to see you. I thought that was one of his daughters. I was like, oh, he can say whatever he wants too. Nope, she's sitting right behind him, hand ready. Um, but uh, <laughs> marriage will be the least fun thing you do in your life sometimes. But like the video said, no matter what adjective you attach to it, it's worth it. Your marriage will be only as good as both of you decide it will be. We are in with everything so that our relationship will ultimately bring honor to God. And you both have to come to decide we want to honor God. Man, this is just, this is, this is so imperative, man. You, you guys have to decide together, man. We are all in. And when you both decide that, man, we are all in pursuing God, pursuing God with everything that we have within us, everything that we have in this relationship, we are all about pursuing God together. And as a family, you will have a very blessed and very special relationship. But it will never be easy. And it will always be a choice. And it will always take work. And it will always take putting God first. And it will always take you denying to yourself. And it will always take you pursuing each other just as the other has pursued the other person, just as Christ has pursued us. And it will always take about being we instead of just about me. I can promise you there will be times when you don't feel like it. You're, you're, you're gonna, the feelings will not be there. And there's no other area in your life, I think, that we are allowed to say, I just don't feel like it. If you're a parent, I just don't feel like feeding my kids today. Try that for a couple of days. Getting an unfamiliar knock at the door from social services. I don't feel like feeding the baby today. I don't feel like going to work. I don't feel like paying taxes. I don't feel like blah. But yet so often, I don't feel this marriage anymore. 
And we make decisions based off of our feelings that we would never make in other areas of our life. And in this area of our life, man, our feeling, your feelings will not be there at times. But trust me, don't trust your feelings. Don't trust your gut because your gut has crap for brains. We have to get over our feelings. We have to get over our feelings and we need to understand that marriage is not measured by feelings. Marriage is measured by a commitment. It's measured by your commitment. It, it, you're both in a covenant, and feelings will follow commitment if you stay committed. I mean, there are times in my marriage, and Jen will tell you the same, and the feelings were not there for weeks, for months, for a few years at times. But we remain committed, understanding that we were in a no-quitting clause. And sometimes that was the only thing that kept us together. The fact that we promised God and somehow we felt God was bigger than our feelings. But let me tell you, if you remain committed, <laughs> if you remain committed, there will be a time when you do the things that you used to do, when you do the things that nobody else does, that you will begin to experience those feelings once again because feelings are fickle, feelings are circumstantial, they're there one day and gone the next, so don't trust your feelings when it comes to this relationship. You may say, I'm not happy, we're not happy, we fell out of love. Okay, I understand those feelings. And I don't want to belittle anyone's feelings who are there. I don't want to say that it's not horrible, but because it is, I don't want to say that you might, you might, be, or you might be around somebody that's incredibly difficult, and you may be saying, but here's the deal, dude, you don't understand. You're right, I don't understand your situation, but I understand mine, and I remember where I was, and though, even though it's unbelievable, and just because you don't feel like love is there and you want to throw in the towel, I, I, I've heard pastors say this, uh, specifically Craig Rochelle and Andy Stanley, they said this, it's, it's a, it says, getting divorced because you ran out of love is like selling your car because it ran out of gas. Getting divorced because you ran out of love is like selling your car because you run out of gas. If you've ever run out of gas before or the tank is near empty, what do you do? You fill it up again. If you've run out of gas, you may need to push that heap a couple of miles to get to the gas station. But you fill it back up. Uh, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 18 and 19 says this, and I, I, I feel like this may encourage some people today, may encourage a relationship. I, the prophet Isaiah says this, he says, forget the former things. He says, don't dwell on the past. God says, see, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. If you feel empty, man, do what it takes to fill it back up again. And I'm totally serious. You may need to push that heap a couple of miles. And you may need to push it uphill. <laughs> but getting divorced because you fell out of love is like, Selling your car because it ran out of gas. It just doesn't make sense when we come at it from the perspective of a covenant. And that's what it was created to be. Last example. Oh, gosh, i got to be done. Um, last example. You can put the last, to, uh, second to last. All right, so here's the deal. When it comes to marriage, we can be united 
or we can become untied. And the only difference between these words, let's go to the next slide, is this letter. Where I be, I know that's horrible English, and I'm glad Lisa Mays isn't here because she would be bleeding out of her her ears. She's a teacher. But where I be will determine where whether we're united or whether we become untied. Notice it's not a letter that means the other person, but it's I, because you can only be in charge of you. And so maybe, maybe that's all you needed to know today. I don't know. Maybe that's all you need to know and you're single, and you get, and all of a sudden you're like, this guy's full of crap. He doesn't understand because once I find the one, it's going to be fantastic, and everything's going to be better because I've read enough Nicholas Sparks novels to know that that's got to be true. And if you've been at this church during any relationship series, I have a vendetta against Nicholas Sparks. Stirring up crap, man. But there's going to come a point in any relationship where you'll want to cash in the covenant and settle for a contract. And know this, that the covenant and the pain and the difficulty and the frustration and the disagreements and all that comes along with it, it's worth it. It's worth it. I'll be married 10 years this April. 10. Yeah. And um, I bought a good present last year because I'm not good with the math, and I thought 10 was this year, so I got the real good present and blew my savings for next year, so I'm screwed for next year. So if anybody has any ideas on the cheap while Jen's not here, hit me up. Um, But, (laughs) and I can say this in all honesty, it's taken me almost 10 years to figure this out. And I'm still figuring it out. And the thing that makes it easier to figure it out is when you've got well-seasoned people in your corner speaking into the fact that life is going to suck as a married person sometimes. But you're not about the convenience, you're about the covenant, and the covenant is always worth it. God intends for husbands and wives to be partners. Because when there's partnership based on covenant, there is not a circumstance or situation that can divide the two of you. And I say this at every wedding that I do. When Mine's a little squishy because it's acrylic because I'm afraid of getting my finger ripped off. But anyway, um, it's neither here nor there. Uh, these rings, the reason they're circular is because there's no beginning or end. And so when we look at there's not a difficult part of this ring. There's not an unforeseen part of this ring. Yeah, there's difficult things that happen in life. There's unforeseen things that you won't expect. That, but there's nothing in this that says there's a break, that there's an ending. When a partnership is established in God, in covenant, yes, difficult things will come, but your partnership, your marriage, your relationship, your friendship will be stronger as you see those things through. Don't quit at the first bump. Father, I thank you for, God, I thank you for marriage. God, there's times, there's been, there have been seasons when I wouldn't have said that. And God, maybe there's times for all of us who are married where we wouldn't have said that, and there's single people that are like, y'all are just crazy, I don't get it. But God, I thank you for the gift of marriage. 
I thank you for the gift of living life with a partner in mutual submission towards each other as, of, as out of reverence for Christ. And God, would you just, would you do something in our marriages in this church? Would you start something? Would you establish something in our marriage, marriages so that our marriages would be marriages that are distinguished and set apart and look weird? Because God, if we look weird, it means we're not normal. Because God, as I look at this world again, normal just isn't working anymore. So God, would you start something? For those who need to be reacquainted with a partner, God, would you begin that in marriages today? Would you help us to see our marriage through your lens and not ours? Would you help us through our marriages speak life and purpose into this world? God, marriage is is such an amazing gift because you are the God who gives good gifts. And so, Lord, we thank you for marriage. We thank you for your love. You love us so well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.